Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Yes, we've been on summer hiatus and we are back and we're back with a bang. We're back with the left left or leftist panel here uh, talking politics in Canada and uh, and in our new time spot following Democracy Now!, which we're very pleased about. So you've just heard what's happening in the States. Uh, listen to what's happening here now because we're in the midst of a federal election and I have some incredible people to talk about that. Uh, first, uh, we've got Nora Loretto, um, then we've got uh, Samir Boule, and finally Alex Grant. Uh, Nora, I'm going to start with you. Welcome. Uh, and you've got a new book out, Spin Doctors. Um, this follows a terrific book that we focused on on the show in a previous time, and that was Take Back the Fight. So tell us about Spin Doctors for a minute. Yeah, so it's um, very long. I'm in the middle of uh, proofread uh, proofreading it, so <laughs> I can say it's... A that's the first thing that everyone should know. It's a very long book. Um, it looks at the first 18 months of the pandemic, the pre-pandemic pandemic. So January, 2020 to June, 2021. And about all of the ways in which politicians and, and journalists spun the pandemic. So spun the pandemic in terms of who was really being injured by it, who was really um benefiting or profiting off of it um and and where we need to uh, like focus our, our 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 mitigation efforts and where we should have focused the mitigation efforts so it follows the months of uh, of that time period and every month has a different theme and so in one of the months the theme is the food processing industries and looking at how food processing workers um were you know bore the brunt of outbreaks and infection and death um and how those are industries where workers are uh, overwhelmingly racialized low paid a lot of people with very precarious status in canada sometimes no status at all um then i moved to other other uh, sections like the serb looking at the serb and how the the government gave people who are receiving serb less then they gave people reserving the wage subsidy, even though they could have been laid off and literally sitting on the same couch doing the exact same thing all day with someone who got served. And that person that got served would get a couple hundred dollars more per month. It, it was just really uh, wild the way in which the pandemic uh, was presented to Canadians and told like, this is all we can do, this is it. And Canadians are like, I cannot socially distance anymore. Like I literally do not see anybody okay, but we need you to just go further. I, I can't go further. There's nothing more I can do. I need you to stop my employer from forcing me to come to work. I need you to pay me to stay home. I need you to send me food. And it was just like, no way are we gonna entertain anything that disrupts Canada's status quo. And so rather than protecting people, we protected the status quo at all costs, which has shot you know, trauma, injury, death, uh, stress and anxiety. Oh my God, the stress and anxiety that people are experiencing is through the roof. And so it, it, it focuses on all these things. And, um, and I hope that by November, when it comes out, people will be really ready to relive 2020 <laughs> and 2021. Sounds cool. And Nora, of course, as we know, um, has been a journalist for, for many, many years. And uh, uh, welcome, Nora, to the panel. Uh, next panel is Samir Boulay. Uh, Samir, um, you should know about you're on the front lines in healthcare. Samir is part of the um, uh, Doctors for Defunding the Police organization, one of the organizers of that. And you are doing residency now at various hospitals. Uh, talk about what that's like. Yeah, so I'm finishing up my clerk shift. Uh, at the end of my medical school now. So right now I literally came off a 26 hour shift. Like I still haven't slept. So it's like, 
just going from, I think being in COVID um, as a medical student, senior medical student, watching the catastrophe as it unfolded as kind of like a fly on the wall was one of the most eye-opening experiences like you could possibly have, like just seeing the amount of destruction that COVID did and how unbalanced, like you could see how unbalanced the, the distribution of who was sick and who got worse outcome really was. So for me, I, um, obviously I was co-founder of Dr. Pretty Funny Police. I used to be a co-president of the Black Medical Student Association. Um, but my main thing is um, I grew up in the west side of Toronto in the Rexdale area. So I'm very connected to the communities there, uh, very connected to the, I grew up in union, like union labor strikes. So it's like, to me, workers' rights and everything that's happening now is all just amalgamating into like one thing. And you can't really look away because if you call them essential workers, but you don't treat them as such, what does that really mean? Um, really here to bring the, the way it works is doctors have too much power in today's society, the way that we're looking at it. The way that people hang on the word of doctors like we are the all-seeing authority for everything and what our thesis and our theory with the doctors for defunding police and the doctors that work with me we really want to flip that power and really try to give it to the community and really say okay what are you guys what have you guys been asking for for decades like nothing that we've been saying is new we literally just talk to the people on the ground we talk to our patients and we're just trying to not advocate for them but let them speak for themselves because at this point we, we are seeing so much that is avoidable. Like the, the amount of death that we see, despair, just loss of life, loss of quality of life. It's just insane. And if we as doctors have a position of privilege where when we speak, it can do something for them, I think we do have to put our voices behind Samir, one of the things you were speaking about just before we went on air uh, was the lack of nurses, uh, that nurses, uh, and who can blame them leaving in in droves. Uh, um, maybe talk about that. And also, you know, maybe just talk for a second, because one of the things that fascinates me about you, Samir, is that the specialty that you're interested in going into is psychiatry, which is talk about, you know, a, a laden, uh, a laden profession. So, so talk a little bit about nursing and psychiatry. Yeah, no, no problem. No problem at all. So it, it's insane. What, what we've been seeing with the nurses even before the pandemic was They've been so stretched out. They have to do the most in the hospitals. They actually do the most. They have the most burden of care. The doctors actually don't. It's the nurses. And what we're seeing now is highly specialized and highly trained nurses in these fields for decades are just leaving. They're saying, no, enough is enough. I can't control this team anymore. I've been in meetings at my hospital where I'm seeing the nurses having a whole huddle with a bunch of new nurses who don't know what's going on-ish. And they're just trying to say, okay, we have to hold it together. We have to get it together. What, what kind of hospital, what kind of system is this? Like we have people that are well-trained in these areas and we're just letting them go and we're not trying to figure out what it would take to retain them and how to make it work for them. It's ridiculous to me. And I think that adds to my, uh, my kind of funny desire to go into psychiatry because to me, I feel like that's one of the most institutionalized, most colonial, most uh, just, it's been used to really oppress the institutionalized people, take them away from society, say they're sick, use labels to get them away from like the human that they actually are and i feel like um the most the most important change that we can make especially like i think that i can make as someone who comes from these communities and i look like most of the people that you see in the psych emerge to be completely honest i think the biggest change that we can do is really really humanize and really show that every single one of these people has the ability and the capability 
to do more, to get better. They're worth something. We can't just throw them to the wayside. And I feel like uh, a lot of times in society, we just try to lock them up, like either jail, our, our institutions, the psych ward is pretty much a jail. It's probably worse. I've heard people from prison saying the psych ward is worse than prison because at least they get to eat and walk around in prison. Like it, it's insane what we're doing to some of these people. So when I, the way I'm going, the way I approach psychiatry, the way I'm going to approach it is very much with the social determinants of health being the main first and foremost thing that we look at. Because the way we look at these patients sometimes is ridiculous. We have something called the adverse childhood experiences, so ACEs, right? There's studies that show the more ACEs you have, the bigger they are, like it could be like sexual assault, uh, domestic violence, abuse, all those things. Those ACEs that you have in earlier life can set you, one ACE can set you on a trajectory that is unbelievable and completely the left field that you wouldn't expect for a child with that many supports or whatever is going on. We have kids that come from communities that have ACEs happening every single day when they're going to school, when they're going to work, when they're walking around in the community. And we kind of ignore that and don't think of that as trauma or don't think of that as something we should look at. And we really medicalize them and really institutionalize them. That doesn't work. We clearly see it doesn't work. So we need to take better approaches. And I think this is where psychiatry, I hope, is going. And the, the new generation, we spoke about the new generation of people coming up. I hope we're focused on that, too. Thanks, Amir. And last but not uh, least, Alex Grant. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you are listening to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM, which, shout out, uh, is the last and only uh, non-profit radio station left in the city. Uh, so please support it. Um, and we're going to go to Alex Grant. Alex, uh, a mainstay on our left, left, leftist panel. Um, Alex, uh, editor of Fight Back magazine, uh, talk about your life. How, how's things where, where Alex lives? Well, I think what Nora and Simeon just said just shows the, they are symptoms of a system in abject crisis. And, 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 I, and I'm seeing that through my organizing. So you know, I'm part of you know, Fight Back's a revolutionary socialist organization. Our website is marxist.ca. And we've never had this much interest because people are seeing you know, the crisis in nursing, the crisis in healthcare, uh, the crisis uh, economically, socially, in terms of racism, police violence everything it just all adds up and people want to get organized and and it's not just uh, it's broad across the working class it's broad across oppressed communities but especially young people you thought millennials were radical or gen z the zoomers oh my god so it's new school year and and we've been doing activity uh, on campus and, and we've just got people lining up to get signed up. Uh, like at Ryerson last week, I, I think uh, 200 people signed up to get active. And, and, and that's just the move. Like, tonight, we've got an event on uh, capitalism has failed, join the revolution. And, and you can see, think that in the past, words like that and language like that would scare people. But for the younger generation now, it's like, yeah, sign me up. Yep, yep, we need a revolution, we got to get active. And, and so it's bringing together all of the symptoms of crisis. Uh, like, uh, and I, I work near uh, uh, Moss Park, and, and you've had this movement to evict uh, people without homes uh, from uh, the camps, from uh, encampments. And the fact is, people understand, like, the broader 
a community understands, well, you, you kick them out of one park, where are they going to go? Where the hell are they going to go? They'll just end up at another park. There needs to be social housing, non-profit housing, a massive investment, uh, the capitalist market treating an essential human need of shelter as a mode of investment and profiteering and speculation has totally failed. Uh, it's an international phenomenon. And, uh, and more and more people understanding to defend the encampments, but uh, also, you know, we could provide jobs for people. We, we should take over the, uh, the developers, the speculators who are building all of these high priced condos that nobody, the half of them are em sitting empty. We should seize them, house the homeless and also expropriate those corporations and build that social housing for everybody and lower the rents so it's affordable. Thank you, Alex. Uh, so that's our panel. And now we're going to dig in uh, to the, the federal uh, election. Um, but first, a comment on something that Alex said, because there was a kind of an amusing tweet that went out saying that uh, watching the police with drones and militarization uh, really brutally evicting people from parks uh, and yet standing by, you know, pleasantly as uh, anti-vaxxers uh, and anti-maskers, you know, uh, where Samir works and other places, you know, trying to block people from going in to provide health care. Um, and somebody tweeted and said, well, maybe if, if they just cast recast it as, you know, a 24 hour, you know, anti-vax protest, the police would leave them alone. I mean, this is this is to get back to defunding the police on Samir's side. Let's dig in. Last night there was a debate. Um, you're going to be hearing this on the radio on a Monday and it's going to be podcast before that. But let's just say, you know, we heard a debate from uh, from those who are running. Uh, Nora, I'm going to sort of circle back to you. Uh, what did you take away from that? What did you think? Yeah, so um, I watched only a little bit of the French debate last night when we were recording um, but because I lost power actually at uh, two minutes to, to eight, which was pretty funny. And so I only caught an hour of it when power got back on by nine. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have uh, the probably the most boring uh, federal election um, ever, and I'm not a huge election person. I mean, I like the political sport. I like watching people joust with with words and, and try to get jabs, and I, I I like all of that. But I've never been like inspired by an election. So that's my that's my like most excited level, and and this is like through the floor level boring. Um, and, and when I say boring, I think uh, it, like we've got five party leaders, all of them who are acting as if we didn't just go through this incredibly traumatic and dramatic 18 months, right? Like everything has changed in everybody's lives in different ways, right? And like some of it's for the worst. Uh, some of us had time to like breathe and go, oh, wow, maybe the way I organized my life before wasn't very good. Uh, some of us are struggling to get by because social programs are, are continuously under strain to help more and more people. And the five federal leaders are like, it's 2019, it's 2015. I mean, like there is nothing being promised that suggests that we're in any kind of crisis moment in the ways that, that everybody has just talked about. And so that that's a very, it creates this cognitive dissonance where it's like, I'm waiting to hear you know the ndp last night in the french in the french debate the question was what what are you going to do if you're the the prime minister of canada jagmeet singh what's your first international act 
And there's so many things that he can say, right? As, as radicals, I think we would imagine that he would talk about Yemen or Saudi Arabia or Palestine, like whatever. There's so many things that he can mention. And he says, well, Canada uh, it spends the least on development in the G7. And so we need to spend more on development. And I was like, you got COVAX sitting right there. You've got, you've got the entire continent of Africa being, being less than 5% vaccinated while Canada is sitting on your six times the number of vaccines per Canadians that we have. And you reach to development. I mean, you're not Justin Trudeau. I would expect him to reach to development. I would expect Aaron O'Toole to reach to de development, but not the ostensibly left-wing party in this in this conversation. And so it just shows it's like, we live in, a, in this incredible political moment where the, the last 20 years that we have been brutally trying to struggle against, I know Alex like has been there for, for a long time and Sherry obviously been there longer for, 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 for uh, I don't want to say all of us. Yes, right? Yeah, since we, the, Jesus was in short pants as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and so finally the post 9-11 era that so many of us have been organizing against and, and had our movements crushed right in 2001 that made it so hard to, 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 to bring the globalization movement into the, into the, what it should have been brought into, right? The, the legacy of Quebec City. Finally, it's all coming to a head. Finally, it's coming to a head. And we have nothing represented in that spirit in the federal parties. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's so funny because the liberals should be responding to the popular sentiment, right? That's what guides the liberals. They're not, they're, they're, they're ideological in, in a very specific way. But if the population are saying, you want this, they, they'll, they'll move towards that direction. The conservatives will too. And we've seen a little bit of interesting movement with their rhetoric around working people, which is all obviously bogus, but it is an interesting shift in their perspective. But the disconnect between what we're experiencing and what we're hearing from these politicians is enormous. And I suspect that that's going to be what tunes would people tune out? Why they tune this election out? Um, because there's just nothing interesting. I mean, who are you going to vote for, right? Every everybody I've heard is voting for some completely very random reason. Whether it's to block this local candidate, I hate that guy. Oh, I grew up with that guy. I'm going to vote for him. Like it has nothing to do with the parties are actually offering in the in their platforms. Thank you. Um, I I I missed it too. I have to admit um, because I was. Uh... Uh, we were co-sponsors of a debate on the environment, one of the 100 debates on the environment that's supposed to ha happen with Christopher Freeland as our local um, MP. So it was Christopher Freeland, NDP and Greens that showed up. And it I, I have to second your motion. It was so boring. There was no actual debate. It were it was three people just saying exactly what they thought the audience needed to hear. Um, nobody was being held to account in terms of uh, the NDP, what's happening in BC, or the Liberals, what's happening everywhere, or the Conservatives, what's happening some places. No, you know, they weren't there, but the Greens, you know, like nobody was being held to account for their platforms, and there was no back and forth debate. So um, it was intensely boring. Samir, what did you think of, uh, of the debate? I was working last you night. You were working. Yeah, I was <laughs> the <working>. classic Canadian. <laughs> 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 so I didn't get to fully see the debate, but I, I saw it on Twitter. I paid attention to it. Yeah, yeah. I second every single thing Nora just said completely with the idea that someone even came up to me today. People know I'm very politically involved with the work I've done, and they asked me, who am I going to vote for? And I kind of laughed. I'm like, who, who cares? Like, like seriously, who, who cares? Like, I can't tell you why you should vote for Jagmeet Singh because I don't think it would actually improve your life materially because right now he's not offering anything that would be we're, we're going through a workers revolution like essential workers are really thrown to the fire and said yeah good luck like good luck and you can't organize those people to say hey 
there's an alternative that we can have where you guys have some power and some say in your lives and you can have better than this where you're just a cog in a system that cares less about you than trash like they care more about trash than some of these people that's that's literally what i've seen the amount of i have friends like friends mothers who have died in the ltc homes working like taking extra shifts to cover for people who couldn't be there and then they catch covid and die like what what is going on right to me right like i take a step back especially like someone going to psychiatry it's like what is the purpose of life like what is the purpose of like what are we doing here like if we are working these people to death in situations that they do not choose how do we expect them to get out of it and these political parties are just playing semantics like to be completely honest you see the ppc coming out doing whatever they want to do you see <laughs> and rising to 10 percent in the polls yeah, gonna, and, and yeah. you know what they're going to keep rising they will keep rising if the liberals and conservatives keep and ndp keep giving you nothing yeah i'm going to look for an alternative why not the greens why not ppc greens are also mainstream so everyone's going to the ppc i know young people who are left-wing in their ideology economically socially they will vote for the ppc and they will because the ppc oh people's party oh that i like that <laughs> it's literally we're voting on emotion and so base level things that have nothing to do with our material conditions and getting ahead so yeah i don't like these parties i don't see what they're doing to benefit anyone on the ground and i like to say that i want to see real people getting involved in this type of stuff and real humans and not politicians and not these people that were trained to do this so yeah uh, not very happy so alex what about you? I, I endorse everything that's just been said, like the extreme boredom. And, uh, and I guess they signed off on the format of no debate. It was a debate with no debate. Is that they all just you know, present their message box and then move on. And, and then the broader campaign, not speaking to the needs of working class people, oppressed people and young people. Absolutely. And there needs to be some anger. There needs to be some anger. People are angry and they will connect with their anger and will organize around that anger. Now, that's why the NDP is, seems to be plateauing at uh, 20% or so. If they mobilized people, if they could mobilize people on the streets, uh, actually connect with that anger, the fact that uh, working class people have been given the shaft in, in COVID while uh, there's been massive bailouts, absolutely massive bailouts, $750 billion made available to the banks and the big businesses. The, the wage subsidy, which the NDP for Christ's sake is taking credit for when it is the biggest corporate handout, $100 billion of corporate handout, no job guarantees, no wage guarantees, uh, nothing, uh, no investment guarantees, and been giving all of this money to corporations and essentially leaving an open goal for when the right wing attacks Serb, CRB, uh, you know, vil vilifying working class people for doing what they need to survive, and, and the NDP giving a very weak response to that. Uh, now, you know, I, I'll give, let's not uh, be sort of 100% critical. Let's only be 99% critical. Uh, so th there's one good line uh, that Jagmeet Singh says is make the super rich pay their fair share. So all right, I can endorse that. I can absolutely endorse that. But it's really only a small amount of the NDP campaign 
the majority, the overwhelming majority of the campaign is Jugme is an awesome guy. And, and, and poutine and trucks. And nope. poutine <laughs> trucks, yes. And you know what? I like poutine. Um, and uh, actually, of all of the political leaders, I, I probably Jugme is the most awesome. But it is an excessively low bar. It's an incredibly low bar and is not going to get anybody out of bed to... Uh, to actually move. Whereas the, the anger is immense. And yes, we, we raised the fact that the PPC is coming up in the polls. We see what happens there. But hey, we can learn from the far right. Not too much. I don't want to overstate this. But the fact that they are organizing, the fact that they are mobilizing, and they will connect with that anger. If the left does not connect with that anger, the right will. That is a lesson of Trump. Trump mobilized people and organized people, uh, whereas the left moderated and moderated and moderated. And, and you become associated with the status quo that people hate. So the only way to defeat the right wing is to give a vociferously anti-establishment left wing message that people will get up and organize. And that would be the way that the NDP would win and that would be the way to defeat the austerity of the Liberals. The only reason they want a majority is for austerity and the Conservatives, the wolf in sheep's clothing, fake left uh, uh, O'Toole. Yeah, I, I have to say that one of the, uh, and this is, you know, said without any um, any tinge of ethicality or morality to it, but I was impressed with the conservative <laughs> campaign coming out. I thought they would crater immediately. Um, and instead, some very smart strategists have tried to cast O'Toole as a centrist. And they've been, you know, more or less successful in that, <clears throat> judging from the numbers. Um, uh, I absolutely agree um, that the NDP is, as they tend to do, um, run in the middle, run as liberals, liberals run as NDPers. Um, this is like something that we've we've seen in the past. Um, do you want to defend uh, a few NDPers in the mix uh, who try to keep uh, socialism alive in the party? <laughs> there are those few. Um, but yeah, it's a depressing, depressing election from my point of view, um, especially when when the stakes are so low large and uh, and and really, you know, our, our only hope, the NDP, um, this is the so-called Labour Party of Canada is doing what the Labour Party in Great Britain did, you know, kind of, you know, uh, yeah, denying their roots, denying their union workers ba base. Um, and let me throw this out to you, because talking about unions, um, let's talk about unions leadership for a minute. Um, we're in Ontario. Um, I know, Nora, you're not, but you can comment from the Quebec side. Um, and here we are sending children back to school. They're back in school this week and next uh, to completely unsafe environments. They're not physically distant, despite what anybody says. They've got classrooms of 28 to 30 kids. Um, nobody knows anybody's vaccine status, and there's no um, move to make that clear. Um, they're given uh, you know, poor PPE to wear, um, and teachers have been told to take off their N95s. The smart ones don't. They just simply wear the, the crappy PPE over their N95s. But I mean, this is the position they're put in. Um, rapid testing, $40 a pop at Shoppers Drug Mart, if you can afford it. Um, uh, and again, we know that children can be asymptomatic carriers. Um, and we know that children can get COVID. Uh, so, and then throw in hybrid teaching where the teacher is 
not only distracted, but they're teaching online and in person at the same time. And not to mention that all the other education workers, the bus drivers who, you know, have little kids behind them, can't see what they're doing, have to keep their eyes on the road. Um, so this, this is happening as we speak. Um, this is the current state of Ontario. So there will be no surprise to anyone when yet another outbreak or outbreaks happen. Um, and then they will be fobbed off by our government as being community spread because, of course, they're not tracing it. <laughs> they're not keeping track of it so they can say anything they want. Um, and uh, I hear from teachers on my Twitter feed all the day and they're terrified. And I hear from parents who are terrified and have, you know, no options, basically. Um, so, uh, so I have to ask, where are the unions? in this and where are the unions in this election so um uh let let's start with samira this time where where are the unions that is the million dollar question um to to, to give like a little background like I, I grew up in like the late like the hotel workers union night here local 75 like i grew up as like a 10 year old picketing like i remember like talk like everything about people and, and workers' rights having to fight for anything. Like, even like a $1, like you have to fight for it. They're not going to give it to you. And to see what I've seen with the unions in the last 10 years, because I, I pay attention to the inside union fights and what's been happening with Unifor, the corporate union, and, and everything that's been happening. And it, it's clear that a lot of the unions have pretty much sold out to the establishment, and they will sell out their workers, and they will not use their their... The power of a union is your ability to strike and bring people to action and say, hey, if you don't listen to our whatever is going on here, we have the ability to withdraw our labor. What I see with a lot of these corporate unions and what's going on is they'll, they'll play politics. They, they will play with the system that is currently going and figure out how to get some gains for themselves specifically and not really care about what happens to the unions and, and people in general. Like there is no coalition. Like the Ontario Federation of Labor or the, the coalition that looks after the unions here. The, there's infighting constantly. The Unifor got kicked out for trying to poach the hotel worker unions at Local 75 and the other smaller unions. So there's infighting all the time and it has nothing to do with increasing the power of workers overall or the state and the material conditions of the workers here. So to me, it's the unions are just, it almost useless, like almost, not 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 useless. Obviously, they still have some power, they still have some ability. You can still use their skeletons to make something better. No one's saying that they're useless completely. But the idea that we have to organize in our community groups or in our outside groups or in our academic groups to find other ways to push these material conditions to also happen is insane to me. Because when I was growing up and like when I was, everything I heard from my parents and what was going on, unions led this stuff. Like unions were at the front line constantly and they understood the value of solidarity. So if one union stroke, another union is going to come out and bring all their people to to show numbers and what's going on and say, that, hey, this is our city. We care about what's going on and we actually care about the people on the ground. I don't see any of that. I, I don't see any of the idea that we have a greater collective that we belong to and we need to give back to. And it's just it's sad to me it's very sad but it's the same thing that's happened to our political parties it's the same thing that happens to our doctors and our institutions like the oma is the largest union technically the largest union in uh, ontario and what the last election they were the largest non-party funder of doug ford like like of sorry of anti-liberal ads that were for doug ford so what are we saying all of these groups like even this is a union they're not for the well-being of society so uh, um we got to do better 
Not to mention the police union. Um, yeah, and and I'm I'm going to go to Noriak next. But I, I, you know, we were we retreated this last um, this last while to to watching um, uh, the head of the Canadian Labour Congress, Hassan Youssef, become uh, a senator. Who knew? <laughs> I thought I thought the NDP was anti the Senate, but you know, there you go. Um, you know, it's a it's a pretty cushy gig. Um, you know. Good on him, I suppose. Um, so, so my my question and my concern here is that we've never seen such terrible conditions for workers, and we've never seen such a uh, a, situ a you know a situation that seems so ripe for a general strike, and yet we're not seeing a strike. Never mind a general strike. So, Nora, uh, union leadership, and let's focus on the union leadership because we know that rank and file. Uh, there's lots of activists there, and uh, kudos to them. But let's talk about the leadership, Nora. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, the, the union leadership was, I think, as surprised as everybody else was about what was happening, right? And so I'm, I'm happy to give them a bit of a pass for the March-April period, right? 2020. Okay. Um, and, you know, in Quebec, there have been strikes, there have been nurses walkouts, the nurses blocked our bridges in the province, um, there has been some radical action. Um, and it's also the only province that had uh, 10,000 new orderlies hired and trained and put into the system between the first wave and the second wave, right? That's really, Quebec has done um, very good work in some cases to try and kind of fix the obvious kind of some of the, the holes in the system. That all being said, the, the local president of the CSN in Quebec City is running for the Liberal Party right now. And she's ahead in the polls. And it's totally shocking because the CSN is not a Liberal union. And so people were shocked to see her running for that party and, and her big thing is shipbuilding and they represent the shipbuilders across the river in Levy. so okay fine i i think that like as you say the fact that there's been no work stoppages as a way to protest what's been going on is very bad uh news for the for labor because it's it's a symptom of uh an incredible lack of uh mobilization around, among the membership and an incredible lack of understanding where their power was as, as samir was saying your power is in your in your work stoppages and you know we've had uh 24 24 workers within the meat packing industry uh died almost all union right that's a very unionized industry uh we've had um uh, lots of transportation workers die of course the majority of those transportation workers were members of uh, the Association of Airport Drivers. So that's a union kind of, but like they obviously are in a bit of a difficult spot because that industry was just decimated during the, the pandemic, obviously as, as uh, flights in and out of Pearson stopped. But there was also workers who died at Brampton Transit and Metrolinx and, and Calgary Transit. And of course the TTC, four workers died at the TTC. There hasn't been a single uh, strike in any of the, of the uh, transit workers even though they were the first ones to take some level of radical action, but it was only in the name of protecting their workers, which was to stop the fair collection, which then they then were like, oh, we're gonna recollect fair collection, even though uh, you know things got bad in June, 2020, when fair collection was basically put back on all across Canada, and it would get way worse than June, 2020 in most parts of this country, right? So, so there's just no orientation towards using uh, worker power to do anything and I, and, and sherry you know I, i'm glad you started with the teachers i have a bit of a different take as to where the school year is starting my kids have been in school for two weeks already cases have actually gone down in our city at the same time which is really wonderful and it's pretty much tied to vaccination rates um because the vaccination rates are so high in quebec right where where, where there's 11 percent more people uh, va vaccinated in quebec than in alberta right that's a huge spread 
uh, when we're talking about like the margins of how high you have to get to, to herd immunity. But when the teachers in Ontario didn't take job action last April and May, I thought that that was just the nail in the coffin for what they were going to be able to do going forward. Right. Like last May, there was not really any reason for all schools to be shut down in all parts of the province. There were definitely pockets of places where people should have stayed out of school, but there were also pockets in this province that had almost no cases at all. And the government was like, it's just easier to shut everything down. And then rather than opening the schools up again at the end of the year, they opened up salons and bars and other activities that is like, okay, okay, those are important maybe too, but like school is really, really important. And I was watching all of that from Quebec where our kids were only out for a month because of our uh, uh, gym outbreak, which people might remember 500 people infected by a gym where the owner was a really hardcore anti-vaxxer, right? So it's just like, that just decimated our school, um, our schooling for a month, but we were all back in the classroom after that. Um, but when teachers didn't take any job-based action to try and pressure Ford to do one thing or the other, or take job-based action to insist that there's rapid testing in schools or insist that all of those social health measures are actually implemented, then it told the Ford government that the teachers aren't going to do it anyway, like forever. They just won't do it. Um, and so we knew that the fall was going to start. We knew that, and that, that kids under 12 would be fully unvaccinated. Um, but we do have a lot more people vaccinated, so that does have an impact on community spread. But the, the teachers have already not done the, they've already not taken that radical action. So Ford's just like, whatever, why would I do anything? Why would I reduce class sizes? Right. And then this is where you get into more proxy arguments where, where teachers have been fighting against high classes for years. And then of course now it becomes really important because of the of the spread and all the reasons that she talked about. So I don't know what it's going to take to get like you know there's like a mobilization and organization and, and, and the union leadership is obviously uh, a solid 40% of the problem because the, the leadership is the one that can direct the mobilization campaigns. They're the ones that can say, yes, we are willing to work for a strike. We're going to build the, the capacity and the in the in the and the agreement to actually have that strike. And, um, and it's very clear that if they're more comfortable than moving into a Senate position, which is, let's be honest, Canada's most luscious, luxurious old age facility in this country, I think, uh, you know, then, then we've got a serious, serious problem with, with leadership in this country. Thanks, Nora. I'm going to go to Alex and uh, and just, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing is, uh, you know, even, you know, sort of grievances, kind of classic union, you know, in good times, classic things, aspects that like hybrid teaching um, and no prep time that teachers are, are looking at now um, that could be grieved. It, it just yet added to the hundreds of other grievances and, and, and the courts seem to be, you know, used instead of strikes. I don't know. Alex, weigh in. What we should be clear about is the incredible wasted potential of the trade unions, the wasted power of working class people when workers are organized. And, and, and we shouldn't come to a conclusion of unions are useless. No, unions could change everything, but the leadership is useless. <laughs> and the leadership has become wedded to a status quo, legalized, loyally uh, uh, approach. Uh, and, and they're just afraid of mobilizing. They're actually afraid of the membership. They're afraid of the workers. And they see themselves as an elite that stands between the boss and between the workers as a mediating role, rather than the elected representative of the workers coming organically 
from the struggles from below. That's what unions should be genuine class struggle, democratic militant trade unionism. That's what it's got to be. And actually I was thinking you've got these sort of COVID mobs harassing healthcare workers in the hospitals. Where's the unions? It, it, you can see that the healthcare workers and the general population is appalled by these people. It would be very easy for the unions to put themselves at the front of this movement and organize a counter demonstration to say, no, we will not allow this harassment of working class people. And, and, and this would also, and can go on from there and say, look, nurses, there's a nursing crisis. You need to pay the nurses decent wages and conditions. You need to hire more nurses and pay them more. It's capitalism. I thought capitalism was supply and demand. If there's a low supply of nurses, then you raise the price and you pay people more to bring them in, right? That's supposed to be the logic of capitalism. And, and, and the unions could be doing this. In terms of work refusals, actually the Toronto Star recently put out a, I think it was a freedom of information request. They got hold of a, of a confidential memo from the Ministry of Labor saying that no COVID related work refusal will be approved. Scandalous. Utterly scandalous given SARS, given that Canada was ground zero for SARS. And what came out of SARS was the precautionary principle. Everybody said, all, all of the studies, all of the inquiries about SARS said, if you don't know what's going on, you assume the worst. And the Ministry of Labor and the Health Ministry of Ontario said, uh, that if we don't know what's going on, we assume the best. And they're pushing the line of that, you know, there wasn't aerosolized uh, spread, uh, that every single, every single work refusal was rejected. Every single one of them. And people got infected and people died because of that, because of that political decision. You know, it, it's what Engels said in the conditions of the working class in England over 150 years ago. This is social murder. This is social murder and the whole system stands condemned. And the, the unions could be mobilizing people around this. You could be using the right to refuse unsafe work to demand those changes. The labor movement needs to be front and center. In fact, uh, just on Monday, was Labor Day, and the uh, in Toronto they organised a, a a very small demo. They didn't want to organise a march when from Black Lives Matter it was revealed that uh, open air demonstrations are, are not a danger. Uh, what they organised was a car cavalcade, and uh, so to limit and and that did limit participation. But uh, fight back, we mobilised. We brought about. I know something like a hundred young workers and students um, and rank and file trade unionists to, to that with anti-capitalist slogans, capitalism has failed, make the bosses pay. And the, uh, and the leadership of uh, the, the people organizing that were actually quite hostile. They didn't want us, we were too radical, right? Uh, there was a gathering, um, but it's, in a parking lot with a barbecue at the end and speeches. And we were like half the people there and said, look, can we have a speaker? And it's like, no, 
absolutely no. It's like, look, here's the radical youth. No. Uh, and so it's status quo, don't rock the boat, and, and it won't last. Eventually there will be a revolution. There'll be a revolution out in the streets or, there, or there'll be a revolution in our organizations, but, but they can't just keep this boring control top down forever. Eventually people will, will revolt. Well, let's, uh, by the way, um, haven't uh, done a, a, a call out for a minute here, but you're listening to the Radical Reverend show. And uh, we have our left, lefter, leftist panel, Adora Loretto, journalist, author, uh, Spin Doctors. Her new book is coming out in November. We've got Samir Boulay, who's uh, one of the organizers of Doctors to Defund the Police. Uh, and we have Alex Grant, editor of Fightback magazine and organizer, uh, all talking and weighing in about our federal election. We haven't really focused much of this on that, uh, but it is happening. It's days away. Um, and uh, I, I want to circle back to uh, because, yeah, we like every I, I think a lot of people and certainly listeners of this podcast and show get the system is, yeah, it's a mess. So let's let's fix it. In the, in the minutes remaining to us, let's look at what we should be hearing from our federal um, counterparts running. Um, uh, and in particular, you know, like, I guess we can focus on the NDP since it's pretending to be the Labour Party and the left. Um, uh, what should they be saying? What should they be advocating? What do we need in Canada? Um, what should we be doing? Um, I'm, I'm going to start, uh, Nora, with you. Um, yeah, what should be coming out of Jugmeat's mouth and um, what should we be doing? What should we be asking for? Well, I, like, I think that now is the time to be asking for things that are really obvious, that is free post-secondary education, that is free daycares, right? Free um, or uh, talking about elder care and supports for people with disabilities, like that actually responds to what's been going on in the last 18 months. So talking about, um, you know, making sure that the Canada Health Act is funding all of this extra level of care and figuring out how to work with the provinces, right? The, the, the Liberals have promised daycare and no one has been making a big deal about how that violates the, you know, the, the constitution and Singh could be doing that, that too. Um, and then I'd also want to be hearing very bold uh, environmental promises, which I mean, the environment has just been completely sidelined by a lot of the way that this, this pandemic is, this election is being talked about. Um, and I do not want to hear one more time about how this election should have happened. Uh, there was no way that this election wasn't going to be called now because you can't have an election in the winter during a pandemic, I don't think. All of the outdoor events kind of proves that. So that would have meant that there'd be no possibility for election until next June. And it's a minority government. So enough with talking about how this election should have been called. The NDP should be talking as if they're excited for it to be called because they want to hold the government to account and watch them fall for the way that they've like protected profits, protected the status quo and not protected average people. And if they could talk about like seizing bank profits, I think that would be really cool too. Cool. Uh, Samir, what would you like to hear? You're, you're, so you're ears deep in the healthcare system now. I'm, uh, I, I mean, if, if you could, you know, be the emperor of healthcare in Canada, how would you, how would you, what would hospitals look like? What would healthcare look like? I think the first thing that, that I would really do is really just overhaul the, their messaging and the idea and how they get their information out to people because if I ask 10 different people what the NDP stand for, what they're trying to do, I'll get 10 different answers for sure, like without a question. I, I've, the way I grew up in the politics that I understand is uh, 
people don't need that much information to get around or have rallying cries around things. Like I would like our parties to have 10 point plans or five point plans and say, these are the things we are going to do because these are going to benefit your life like this. For me, if I was the czar of healthcare, let's say whatever's going on, um, long-term care is the first thing I'm starting with. Long-term care is healthcare. Long-term care is literally the most advanced healthcare we have with these elderly patients who on average live one to one and a half years. They don't survive long in those places. And they need a high level of care. We're normally supposed to be, they, they say minimum eight to one. They say, we say in the hospital it should be four to one. I'm seeing ratios of 35 to one, like at night, 40 to one, like with not well-trained nurses. These are PSW. Like this is insane. So what I would like to see and what I would like to really reverse is the 30 years of austerity, the last 30, 20 to 30 years of austerity of the healthcare budget, where every single year you don't raise the budget per se, but you always fund the police. You always raise them by 4% or 3% to make sure they keep up with inflation or whatever's good for them. But every other resource service, education, healthcare, <laughs> anything you could think of that would keep people out of crime or out, or out of jail or out of the poverty, we, we cut it. We cut the funding. We want to keep you on the edge, right? Like the idea is if we keep you desperate and on the edge, you will keep working and going to death. What was the stats? 52% of Canadians are $200 away from bankruptcy? Like, like what are we doing? What, what, what is going on here? And I really like to see these politicians address the seriousness of the, of the time that we're talking about. Everyone's kind of just really going around it and trying to say, hey, we'll do this better. I'm better than this party like this. Very much semantic like. But there is anger brewing underlying. You can see it how divided the country is. You can see everything that's going on. We just had a, a murder of a, a sick India, uh, an international student in Nova Scotia. And we're not even covering to the extent that it should pause. It should be everywhere. It should be the number one thing we're seeing, period. This kid came for a better life and was doing everything this country tells you to do. Work hard, do it, go to school, do whatever you want. And what happens? He, he got killed. I come from the, the mosque I grew up in. No one even talks about this anymore. But last year, someone came up and sliced the guy's neck, the elderly caretaker that was sitting there. I grew up in that mosque. I'm not, I'm not super religious or anything, but to see that type of stuff is absolutely insane. And we just keep moving past it. We had a family of Muslims just run over. Well, this is, there's a pattern. There is clearly a pattern. We are ignoring it. And I think all of these parties need to get serious, but uh, we'll see what happens. I don't think they will. So uh, again, all the revolution stuff you're talking about, if they don't get with it, it's only a matter of time. Thank you, Samir. Uh, true, uh, uh, white supremacy is, are, are not words that I've heard out of any of, of the leaders' mouths, actually, uh, but it's certainly a factor here. Um, Alex. Uh, what do you want to see happen? We need a party that accuses the system as a whole, the capitalist system, that everything that is wrong with society is due to capitalism and, and not be afraid to say that. In fact, before the pandemic, 58% said they supported socialism. I'm sure that's higher. Uh, overwhelmingly, sentiments have moved left. 70% uh, say corporations don't pay their fair share. 89% are in favor of wealth taxes. Their sentiment is there, it can be mobilized. The fact is that while they're attacking working class, poor people, oppressed people and young people, they are giving billions of dollars of bailouts. 
And that is a symptom the system is not working. If it requires corporate welfare to exist, then it shouldn't exist. So we should be talking about public ownership, nationalization, workers' control. If they can't run it, we should. Working class people should. And accuse the system. Go straight for the jugular. And that would mobilize people. That would connect it with that anger. So socialism, yes, that's what it needs, the S word. Put forward socialism, that would be very popular. And that would give us everything we need. Universal housing, properly funded healthcare, uh, free education, uh, decent jobs. That's all encompassed in the call for socialism. Um, I, I'm just going to add in a, a few things here. Uh, uh, certainly, the Samir, your talk about long-term care um, has been um, an, ap an absolute abomination during COVID. I mean, that's where most of the deaths have happened, right? Or certainly a great deal of them. And, and these are people don't have, never mind not nursing, they don't have air conditioning in their rooms and those heat waves that we're experiencing. Um, so uh, yeah, um, you know, uh, I, I know the NDPs put forward dental care, pharma care, and have talked about um, long-term care being public. Um, but I mean, things like Gora talked about, you know, childcare, childcare was a, a second wave feminist demand, universal free childcare. That's over 50 years old now. We still don't have it, right? Um, and by the way, uh, looking south of the border, also control over our bodies, which is constantly under attack. Um, so there's there's that as well. And of course, white supremacy, you know, uh, undergirds all of this. One of the things we haven't heard about that we heard about so much before the election is indigenous rights. We've just witnessed, you know, the well, not I mean, we've witnessed that they found, um, you know, the lack of, of due burial process for for children. But we've known forever that, that thousands of children died uh, in residential schools. And yet all of a sudden, indigenous issues are t totally off the table. Like it's hard to even hear about them and they get thrown in as an after thought for the environment. And the environment, um, one of the things that uh, I'm amazed that the conservatives and liberals don't use more against the IDP is the situation in BC with Horgan um, absolutely trampling on indigenous rights and, uh, and you know, destroying old growth forests, um, welcoming, giving uh, benefits to fossil fuel companies. I mean, uh, it's amazing people haven't brought that up. Um, but um, we've just got, we've got like three minutes left. So a really fast take on this. Um, and Nora, for sure, I'm going to start with you because this is about media. Why are we not getting information about any of this unless you listen to shows like us? And by the way, also Nora and Sandy and other shows that talk about political issues. Nora, why aren't we hearing any of this in the mainstream media? Yeah, there's so many reasons. One is because, you know, most of our media are owned by conservative linked or hardcore conservative activists, and they, they, they absolutely want to protect and defend the status quo. Um, so that's like the, the biggest reason. And then it filters down that in the in, in when the profits are, 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 uh, are threatened, then they lay everyone off. And so there's also just like way fewer journalists uh, to cover everything. And when there's way fewer journalists, the connections that those journalists have direct connections with conservative party operatives or, or, or whatever, they're there, right? The, the, the most status quo maintaining journalists, the ones that get this, the few spots, because that's what happens within this, this the, the way that our model operates. Um, and so there's no space for innovation. There's no space or time or energy to be able to think about any of this stuff differently. And you know, Sherry, I just posted a, a thread about active cases in Canada right now, just like looking at Vancouver and Kelowna and Toronto, Montreal, Saskatoon. And 
this is something that should have been done weekly. Tell Canadians where the hot spots in the country are and the low spots every single week. Tell Canadians where the city is in relation to other cities, right? Rather than making every single Canadian think that they're in the worst position possible. But we don't have any of that. And it's all very intentional. And then, of course, the CBC is um, more and more operating like a straight state broadcaster every day. And I guess I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay, um, Alex, I'm going to go to you uh, next. Uh, media, just a fast, uh, a fast view on that. Yeah, well, I think there's a silver lining to this. I think people are increasingly, especially young people, are tuning out the corporate media. And there's been a change. Like, yes, there are fewer jobs in corporate media, in you know, establishment media, but there's been a rise in movement media. There's been rise in media with a message. You have to have something to say and you have to be organizing. And, and that's why Fightback, Marxist.ca, we've seen an incredible growth, people subscribing and supporting us because we've got something to say. And, and I think that is the new model, actually, is people putting their money to support media that supports them. And, uh, and that's what we should do. And Samir, I'm going to let you have the last word before you go and get some well-earned sleep uh, after your 26-hour shift. And then this, thank you, <laughs> thank you for uh -huh. being here. Uh, you're you're mired in the healthcare system. Um, what do you want media to, to tell us about the healthcare system? Oh, the healthcare system. I was going to say about media because I, I hate yeah, well, yeah, and media generally. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Um, this what is it? 80% of the media in Canada is owned by like four companies. Um, we do not live in anything that is free information or the free thoughts. I fully agree with Alex. Like you definitely, the future is independent media like Sandy and Nora, uh, this show that you have here, Sherry. Like these type of things need to be broadcasted, made uh, scaled up and continued. I'm fully into that. Anything that's controlled by an institution or can be filtered out, it's clearly not good and has their intentions first and foremost. Well, thank you all. We're out of time. It's been a joy. Uh, Nora Loretto and uh, Samir Boule and Alex Grant, left, left or leftist here on the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, tune in and get active. Okay, thank you and bye-bye till next time. By the way, we also love to hear from you, so keep that going. Whoa.